You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR, and thank you to Black Noise Radio for their show. Welcome to Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard, and I'll be with you for the next half hour. I want to begin by acknowledging that I meet and work on the land of the Kulin Nations, where sovereignty was never ceded, and I pay my respect to elders, past and present. Today, I'm taking another look at the laws protecting the environment. I'm speaking with Rob Fowler about the interim report of the Review of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, or the EPBC Act. And keeping with the environment theme, I'll also be speaking with Viviana Maritas about research on the long-nosed potteroos. They basically just look for these sporocarps. So they dig an ecosystem engineer, much like our bilbies and betongs and lyrebirds as well. Like they dig to forage for these truffles. And as they dig, they turn over the soil and that increases the soil fertility. Sometimes it can mitigate fires. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Viviana Maritas coming up later in the show. But first up, the EPBC Act. Rob Fowler's an adjunct professor in environmental law at the University of South Australia. He led the team of environmental law experts that developed the Appeal Report, that's A-P-E-E-L, and that was a blueprint for the next generation of Australian environmental laws published in 2017. I was interested in his thoughts on the interim report of the Samuel Review, but to begin, I asked Rob about the role of the law in protecting the environment. To set standards for environmental quality and to put in place frameworks for the making of decisions and the policies that are intended to protect the environment. So law provides the framework within which we would hope that governments will perform their responsibilities with protection and conservation of the environment. And are there some limitations to what the law can provide? Yes, I think even when we were running what we called the appeal project, we acknowledged that for a start, laws are only as effective as, as they are well written. And even if you've got very good laws, then their implementation by governments can vary. And there's a whole additional area beyond law of policies, strategies and other forms of direction that are not of themselves laws. Laws are part of the equation, a very important part. Without it, we would not be able to protect the environment. A number of reports produced over the last four or five years agree that Australia's environment is in a state of decline. And much of the blame has been placed on the inadequacy of the EPBC Act. So is the problem the Act itself or the federal government's failure to administer the Act? The short answer to that is it's both. This Act has existed now for over 20 years and there was a predecessor to it adopted by the Whitlam government back in 1974-75. There have been repeated inquiries, Auditor General's reports, concerning in particular the way in which the Commonwealth inserts itself into the process of assessing and, and approving projects that might have some form of national significance from an environmental perspective. The Whitlam government was world-leading in adopting that law. It was one of the first of its kind anywhere in the world, but it had certainly become outdated. So then when the Howard government introduced this new law, there was a great deal of optimism that it might provide a, a new standard. 
Since then, over the last 20 years, it's become apparent that the law itself was poorly drafted, is incredibly cumbersome and complex, and is just failing to do its job. And that's been reinforced by the findings most recently of a very damning report by the Auditor General into the administration of the Act by the Commonwealth Environment Department, and now by the Samuel Report. It needs to be replaced in its entirety. Right, and has not been adequately administered successive coalition governments since Tony Abbott was elected and now the Morrison government have reduced the resources within the Commonwealth Environment Department that are dedicated to the administration of the law and its implementation. So it's not just the law is in effect, it's also that the Commonwealth government is not prepared to provide the resources that are appropriate and necessary for an ineffective law to at least have some effect. When the current review of the environmental laws was announced in October last year, the Federal Minister for the Environment, Susan Lee, stated that one of the aims was to tackle, and I quote, green tape and deliver greater certainty to business, farmers and conservation groups. So I'm wondering, what do you feel the Morrison government was looking for, looking to achieve by this review? Were they concerned about the environment and the environmental laws? What's your sense of it? The government was obliged to conduct an independent review because the Act itself does contain a provision that requires a review once every 10 years. So it had no choice, and it waited to the very last moment. But that's the first thing to understand. The government didn't choose to go into this review. It was compelled to do so by the law itself. There's been a competing tension ever since the review was initiated as a result of some of the statements made by the Federal Environment Minister between the goal of greater efficiency in the implementation of the law, which means what the minister's called less green tape, and greater effectiveness, which is what the community has been seeking in terms of outcomes and the objects of the Act. And those tensions are evident even after an independent review has presented its interim report. The reviewer has called for major reform of the Act, has called for the establishment of an independent regulator who would not be subject to ministerial direction, and immediately the minister stepped in and said, well, we're just not going to do that. That's out of the question. We are going to make amendments to the Act even before you presented your final report in November. The government's position is very clear. It is not interested in major reform of the Act to improve environmental outcomes. Its objective is to try to facilitate more efficient approvals of proposals. And of course, with the COVID situation now and the commission that has been looking into the post-COVID, so-called post-COVID recovery plan, largely populated by people with a background in the gas industry, it has the perfect excuse for saying where we need to stop this Act from getting in the way of major resource development. I read a media report that Professor Samuel said he comes to chairing this review, I think he he used the term as a clean skin, that he's kind of an honest broker was my sense. The report itself is very thorough in its examination of the weaknesses of the current legislation and the implementation of the legislation. I think it is in that sense a, a relatively objective report. I don't think he's sought to do the government's bidding. I think he's attempted to the best of his abilities to produce a report which is thorough, detailed in its critique and quite wide-ranging in its recommendations. The other side of that coin, though, is that coming to it as a clean skin, I think there are certain aspects of how to define the role of the Commonwealth in the long term in relation to the protection of the environment and how to reflect that in administrative arrangements, which not having a background in environmental management and environmental law, I feel he's failed to understand. 
And as a result, there are ambiguities and, and difficulties with some of the recommendations that will need to be teased out and clarified between now and the final report. So there's strengths and there's weaknesses in the interim report of the review of the EPBC Act. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Robert Fowler, adjunct professor in environmental law at the University of South Australia. I asked Rob if he thought his concerns would be addressed in the final report. The area where I think there is the need for clarification is around the idea of devolution of responsibility for assessment and approvals of projects under the Commonwealth legislation to the states. Under the current Act, it is possible for the Commonwealth to delegate to the states the responsibility for handling the procedural aspects of environmental assessment, for going through the receipt of the documentation from a proponent, examining it, determining what else needs to be added. Uh, There's a similar provision in the Act for the Commonwealth to devolve to the states the ultimate responsibility for the decision. And that latter provision has never been activated. The Abbott government wanted to do so under what it called its one-stop-shop initiative. And essentially what the Samuels report does is revive the idea of devolution of the approval powers of the Commonwealth to the states in certain circumstances. And in particular, he suggests where the states are meeting so-called national environmental standards and can show that their legislation, their policies are compliant with and with those national environmental standards. So what he's done is pick up what has been a coalition position for some years now, going back to 2012, and endorse that suggesting that there'll be greater efficiency if the Commonwealth gets out of the way and allows the states to make the final decisions on matters that fall subject to the Act. I've always felt that that was a rather odd way for a Commonwealth to assert its environmental responsibilities, to set up this whole legal framework and then to say to the states, well, OK, now we're handing it all over to you to do on matters of national environmental significance. It, it just seems to me a bizarre way to go about it, but it's the reflection of a philosophy of what we call cooperative federalism, where the Commonwealth and the states try to find ways to work together rather than independently of each other, which is fine. But in certain areas, a centralisation of responsibility is something that I would argue is absolutely necessary. And I think where projects do raise matters of national environmental significance, the Commonwealth has a responsibility in as far better place to, to perform these functions. And, and that the whole idea of delegation or devolution to the states needs reconsideration. That just doesn't seem to have occurred to Samuel with the endangered species, where that species may exist in one state, it's something that affects us all nationally. I mean, there's no, no question about that. That's right. And, and, and that raises the point that, in fact, this Act has four or five different elements to it. And so far, our discussion has been primarily about the environmental assessment and approval of projects. But there are other provisions around trade in wildlife, around Commonwealth reserves, and around uh, endangered species, which, as you say, were all put in together into the one act. And interestingly, the Samuels report suggests that these matters should perhaps be teased out again in the future and made the subject of separate acts. It has called for good data on which to base decisions. That's one of the things that we haven't had. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally support those calls. And in in this case, Samuel suggested that there should be an independent environment protection authority, but no clear idea as to how this is all going to be done. I think the other very important recommendation is around regional environmental planning. Again, there's not even an awareness of the need for some sort of mechanism to ensure that these plans are, are followed through. It's disappointing to see that some of those more sophisticated elements of of environmental management haven't been picked up. 
one of the things that I think is very important is that the report has recognised the failure of the EPBC Act to sufficiently protect Indigenous culture. Yes, I noticed that too. And there are some quite strong statements calling for much stronger provisions to be inserted into this Act or into a new Act to ensure effective protection of Indigenous heritage and culture. And I think it's obvious from recent events in, in Western Australia that there's a need for that type of protection that's just not there at the moment. Rob Fowler, adjunct professor in environmental law at the University of South Australia, talking about the interim report of the review of the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. And as he says, there are some positives in the interim report, but a lot to be concerned about. And there's still an opportunity to comment that closes next Monday, August 17th at nine in the morning. If you're thinking you might like to contribute, you can just Google EPBC Act Review .environment.gov.au and I will put on the website. Coming up next, the truffle-eating long-nosed potteroo. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. You're on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes and I'm Judith Peppard. Viviana Maritas is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. She did her honours research here in Victoria at Deakin University, studying the interaction between feral cats and the long-nosed potteroo. The first thing I wanted to know, since I've never seen one, is what does a long-nosed potteroo look like? Imagine a kangaroo, but if it was like just over a kilo, that's basically what they look like. They still have really long feet elongated snout so yeah even like a quokka I think most people are pretty familiar with quokkas so they're about half the size of a quokka but unlike kangaroos and quokkas which are macropods so which basically means long-footed they're actually part of the rat kangaroo family and that family includes potteroos obviously but also rat kangaroos and betongs they're just distinguished from macropods in that they still have long feet but they're not quite as long they also have different teeth and different skull structure but yeah, they're still like a marsupial where they have a pouch and they look very much like a small kangaroo. So where do you find a long-nosed potteroo? Where would I go? Where are they found in Australia? In mainland Australia, they're still quite rare because they are vulnerable as a result of loss of habitat, but also cats and foxes. Probably one of your safest bets is where I did my research, which is French Island. 
they're doing really well there. But you would have to be out at night time because they're nocturnal. What kind of habitat does it need? Like what, where does it like to live? During the day when they're sleeping, they will nest in dense vegetation. And then at nighttime when they're out foraging and they forage for truffles, so a type of fungi, they go out in more open vegetation. That's not what we saw on French Island. And I will talk about that a little bit later. And uh, I was going to ask what it eats. So you said it eats fungi, other things as well? They basically just look for these sporocarps. So they dig an ecosystem engineer, much like our bilbies and betongs and lyrebirds as well. Like they dig to forage for these truffles. And as they dig, they turn over the soil and that increases the soil fertility. Sometimes it can mitigate fires. It's pretty amazing. So can you describe your research? What were you trying to find out? During my third year of undergrad, I worked for the zoo. So Zoos Victoria, I got a job as a research assistant and they asked me to look at feral cats on French Island. And this was part of a bigger project because the zoo wanted to introduce eastern barred bandicoots to the island, which were extinct in the wild. And so I was there looking at cats and how they would impact that introduction. I came out of undergrad and I was like, well, I'd really love to do an honours project. And so I went back to the zoo and I was like, how can I grade this project? And they were like, yeah, we can still keep collecting data, but we can also look at how cats are interacting with long-nosed potteroos on the island, where we weren't just looking at how many cats were on the island, but we were also looking at how they were moving and what times they were active and then how they were interacting. How did you find that out? We use these motion sensor cameras. They detect differences in temperature. So when an animal moves past, it's a lot warmer than its environment and the camera fires and takes photos. These cameras have completely changed the way we do research. They're still quite new to conservation biology but they are so invaluable we had them uh, dispersed within our study area so it was within the national park they were within different vegetation and so when they were firing they were collecting not only what species were there but also we then knew how many times that species was photographed over a three-month period and also what vegetation it was in that's been an amazing moment to bring the cameras back in and look at what they had found. Did you just have to wait for three months? You couldn't have sneak peeks to see what was going on? You can collect the SD cards a bit earlier, but it's better to just have them running for three months because that's when you get the optimal amount of data for cats and potteroos. That was the time frame, and we did that over two seasons. So we did it over summer and winter. So we actually ended up with six months of data in the end. So you started looking at the images. What did you see? Yeah, so the first interesting thing we found is that even though potteroos are described as nesting in denser vegetation and then foraging in more open vegetation, in our study area, we found that potteroos were rarely going out to the more open vegetation. And that has been seen before with other species, they will compromise higher quality foraging habitat to mitigate predation risk. So we're thinking because cats were basically found everywhere within our study area that maybe potteroos are trying to avoid that predation risk by sticking to that more dense vegetation. And we did unfortunately get some images where cats had killed potteroos and we knew they hadn't scavenged them because cats rarely scavenge. They normally prefer live prey. 
the other super interesting thing that we found was because these cameras collect activity times, so basically when they take a photo, they also tell you what time they took the photo. So when we put that together, we found that cats were really active just at the start of nighttime, so around 9pm, and then they were active again in the morning. And potteroos, as expected, were active mostly at night time. But the times that they were active overlapped. But the peak activity time, so when they were most active, we saw that cat activity would start to decrease. And then as soon as it started to decrease, long-nosed potteroo activity started to increase. This is another way that they could be mitigating that predation risk by shifting the time that they're most active. And we saw that over both seasons, summer and winter. And even though the cat activity shifted with the change in season, potteroo activity did exactly the same thing and shifted as well. So again, their peak activity times were different. Again, this is something that's been seen with predators, but it hasn't really been seen before where a native prey species has shifted its activity time to avoid a feral predator. And that was really exciting. And that was really exciting. I was speaking with Viviana Maritas about her research at Deakin University on the interaction of feral cats and long-nosed potteroos. And even though the potteroos have accommodated the cats, cats are still a huge problem. Cats are a massive issue. That's something I'm really interested in. How can we better protect our native species? And with cats, they're very difficult to manage. They're very clever and very hard to control. The only ways that we've kind of been able to mitigate predation risk at the moment has been through either culling cats or eradicating them from fenced areas or islands. And French Island is one of those areas where they are hoping to eradicate cats. If it does happen, that would be great because there are other species which are suffering as well. But what I'm really interested in is when cats can't be managed or eradicated, how do we better protect native species? And that is very relevant in mainland Australia because we can't remove cats completely. What we found with long-nosed potteroos is that what matters to them the most is vegetation. So how they're surviving is that they're able to hide in that denser vegetation and regenerating habitat and protecting habitat is probably the most important thing for that species and for other similar species as well. What we're saying really is that culling of cats isn't necessarily the answer. Sometimes even one cat can decimate an entire population and that has been seen before. So if a species is showing that it can benefit more from regenerating its habitat, then that's maybe something we should be focusing more on. Yes, and that's a really important finding. The more information we have, the better. You have a population which is very unique in that it can survive in the presence of cats. What happens with a lot of sanctuaries where predators are not present is that these species kind of forget what it's like to avoid a predator. And so then you go to introduce them in an area where there are predators and they don't do very well. And so what we're saying is that you have this unique population that has developed this predator awareness. And so they're probably a really good population to introduce to other areas where long-nosed potteroos were, were present or even if they want to boost the population in areas of mainland Australia. 
that really makes sense. And do you have any idea of how their habitat, you mentioned the importance of habitat, how it's been affected by the bushfires in Victoria? Yeah, it's been reduced. I don't have final numbers on how exactly it's impacted long-nosed pelaroos, but I know it definitely has, along with many other species. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the results are from that. Is there anything you'd like to say about your PhD research? Yeah, I'm doing my PhD on the south coast of New South Wales, looking at how species impacted by the fires can be better protected. Unfortunately, my fieldwork has kind of changed because of COVID-19. I'm looking at arboreal mammals, our glider species and possum species living in the trees. The canopies have been equally devastated as all the ground cover. So how can we better protect these species? And it's really interesting because I don't know if people have seen but the sugar glider was recently divided into three different species. And so what we originally knew as the sugar glider is now only really limited to this small part of Australia. And a lot of that area has been burnt. And sadly, of course, the bushfire season will be coming up again soon. Let's hope it's not like it was last year. Hopefully not. Congratulations on your research. Beginning the PhD, it's fantastic. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Judith. Viviana Baritas, a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. Goongar Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. We're coming to the end of Listening Notes. And a big thank you to our guests, Rob Fowler and to Viviana Moritas. And to you, of course, for tuning in to 3CR this afternoon. Coming up next is Diaspora Blues. So do stay tuned to 3CR for that great show. And I'm going to go out with Destin Maloya and Finale. Wa bonté la finale la haut la 
toujours le même place dans mon cœur n'a point un jour où m'y pense pas où manque à moins m'y rappelle tout le monde moment où l'a passé comme s'il était hier sorti tout ça là va pourquoi pour la partie pourquoi bon Dieu la voie la finale la haut la finale la haut la finale wa bon Dieu la finale You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.